back in the fur shed. This is the Trapping Today podcast. I'm your host, Jeremiah Wood. Thanks for tuning in. Great to have you here. Podcast is brought to you by Cots Brothers Lures, K-A-A-T-Z-B-R-O-S dot com. Trap smarter, work harder, enjoy the success that follows. We're also brought to you by Fur Harvesters Auction, where the world comes to buy wild fur. An auction house run by trappers for trappers, working hard to get your fur sold at the best possible price. Check them out at furharvesters.com. And we got a few things to talk about tonight and uh, in terms of Cots Bros and Fur Harvesters. So uh, Cots Brothers do have a special discount code. I forgot to mention it in last week's episode. But if you go to Cots Bros and place an order anytime between now and the end of the year, um, which is two weeks from now as I record this, you... Enter the code at checkout WOOD5, W-O-O-D-5, and you're going to get 5 bucks off your order. As long as you order something over $20, you're going to get a free $5 uh, discount on that order. So uh, be sure to do that if you get any supplies to order. I know for me, this time of year, I'm working in the shed. Uh, you know, I still get a few traps out, and it, there, it always seems that there's something, some little thing that you forget or you run out of or whatever that you need. Right now, I got to order a uh, skinning apron uh, for beavers. I'm just, um, I've been up to my elbows in beavers, um, beaver pelts that I have been pulling out of the freezer, and uh, you know they're all they're all skinned out, and I've been fleshing them and boarding, and making kind of a mess. I, I'm like, man, I ought to have one of these these um, aprons, these heavy duty beaver aprons. So, you know, there's things like that that just pop up that you need. And uh, that's a great opportunity to go and make an order, and that $5 off can really save you on the shipping cost. So it uh, makes it a little more reasonable. So go to cotsbros.com, let them know that I sent you. And with Fur Harvesters, our friends over there, I've been trying to get them on uh, to to uh, talk about you know all the changes. There's so much going on, and as you might expect, the gentlemen at Fur Harvesters are incredibly busy trying to pick up the pieces and trying to kind of take over a lot of the uh, business that has been uh, left um, kind of out to dry as NAFA has uh, has gone out of business and in, in as far as wild fur is concerned. So there's a, a lot of things that they've been doing, they've been working on. For instance, one of the things that's happened recently, uh, I just posted an article this week on trappingtoday.com about uh, uh, it was in CBC News about trappers uh, being concerned after the northern stores stopped buying fur. So th- this is um, you know a chain of retail stores up in northern Canada that has always bought fur, and unfortunately because of the market conditions, they announced that they would no longer be be buying fur from trappers. So that's been a, a really important source of income for trappers and like immediate cash to, to buy supplies and, and things that are needed where they can't necessarily just send fur out to the auction. You know, you're, you're talking months before you get paid at a minimum. So it was like, oh man, what is going to happen here? Um, and then on December 12th, we get a press release from uh, the Northwest Company. Um, in conjunction with fur harvesters from Winnipeg, Manitoba, um, is actually on December 11th. Said the Northwest Company and Fur Harvesters Auction are delighted to announce an agreement to work together to support the Canadian trapping community. 
Uh, Northern stores will act as an FHA agent by once again accepting furs from trappers and providing advances against the sales at auction. Mark Downey, CEO of FHA, noted, we have a long relationship with Northwest and believe this arrangement will give trappers an important option to get their fur to market. The trapping of fur remains an important economic and cultural activity, especially in remote communities. Recent changes to the fur industry resulted in a brief suspension of our fur buying. However, this new arrangement will enable us to resume funding in the communities where we operate. We recognize the role we can play in supporting trappers and are pleased that this arrangement will enable us to continue to serve in this capacity. All right, so so that's good news. That's just another example, like I've mentioned before, where when, where there's an opportunity and where there's fur being produced, there are going to be people that are going to find a way to, to um, get their hands on that fur uh, and either buy it or, or help you sell it. So uh, another example of that is Grunwald Fur and Wool Company has been buying fur in Canada. They just started a Canadian operations and I guess they have already um, done a, a couple of uh, a buying events up there. So uh, uh, there's some trappers talking about that on the Canadian trapping forums. And uh, that's uh, that's good to hear. It's just another option. You know, you, you may one may be a better price than the other, uh, and that may go back and forth. But just having the market for the fur is is the biggest thing. So that's good. It it's you know it's a tough fur market, but um, the, there are there are solutions, and I think things are going to work themselves out. We may not get the best prices, but you're gonna be able to sell fur. And interestingly enough, this afternoon I was working on something. You, as I've mentioned before in the podcast, I have this project. I'm working on a book um, that is covering the works of Walter Arnold, who is a, a old timer trapper from the woods of Maine, who used to write back in the fur fishing game magazines back in the 1930s uh, and 40s and, and and into the 50s. He was a very prolific writer, uh, well-known across the country. He had a lure-making business. He had a trapping supply business. He actually sold the lure business to uh, Oscar Kronk, who still runs it down in in, uh, Wiscasset, Maine. Uh, But uh, Arnold was quite a figure, and and he wrote a bunch of stuff and I've been going through a bunch of his old articles and we're going to I'm going to make those available in a book. Um it's you know I'm going through a lot of editing and a lot of uh working through those and and making them so that we can put it into book form. And one of the articles that I worked on today was was kind of fascinating because it was written at a time when the fur market was in a very low period. And we we automatically assume as modern day trappers that uh, you know the fur, fur prices were always good and you know it's just now that we're experiencing really low fur market and that's not the case there were a lot of periods in the past where fur was very low and in some cases almost impossible to sell for instance in the early 1950s you couldn't sell a fox pelt um, in the 70s fox pelts were going for 60 70 dollars a piece on on average in 1970s dollars so these markets do fluctuate they have fluctuated a lot over time and and it's just uh, it's just a matter of supply and demand changes in the global economy back then actually it was funny to to read through this stuff because at the time 
the United States was actually an importer of wild fur, and fur products were made in the United States, coats, hats, and, and so on, and consumed in the United States. So it was a completely different market. And at the time, trappers were complaining that Russia was flooding the market with Russian-produced wild fur. So it's amazing to see how things have kind of turned on their heads. And now the U.S. is an exporter, not a consumer of wild fur, an exporter and exporting to places like Russia and China, which was never even considered back then. And uh, and we're in a completely different situation where we're, you know, we're we're exporting the wild fur to them. So, you know, this fur market has bounced around for decades and uh, it's always it had its highs and had its lows and it's a low right now, but I really am not one of those guys that thinks it's a permanent situation where fur will never come back. Um, it's not, things aren't what they were in the past, but fur is a, a very valuable product in my opinion. We do need to continue to think of ways to capitalize on the value of fur. Uh, I'm I'm starting to see more and more, um, especially when we get into these cold weather months, uh, how valuable fur is compared to a lot of other clothing products. For instance, I, I tried to order a hat online and I went through a, you know, I was trying to order like a, a fur hat. And, and in my case, it was just rabbit fur because I don't have the $200 to buy a beaver or, you know, a Martin or have a, a you know, have a fur hat made from my own fur. At, at this time, I don't have the money for that. I want beaver gloves as well, uh, beaver mitts, and I don't have the $200 to uh, pony up for those either. But uh, I'm, I'm trying to get into wearing more fur, and kind of, you know, practicing what we preach sort of deal. And so I wanted something at least real rabbit fur bomber hat type type thing. And I went back and forth and I finally found one on Amazon that was supposedly real rabbit fur and I it showed up at my door and it was fake fur. Um, and it it was hard enough to find just to find something advertised as real fur. Every single thing they had for sale was faux fur, faux fur, faux fur. Um, apparently, you know that is a marketing tactic. Uh, you know, it, it's a positive in a lot of circles nowadays to, uh, to have fake fur instead of real fur. This one was advertised as real fur, and it turns out it was fake fur. So I sent it back. Um, got a refund on that, and I ordered one from LL Bean, which was was indeed real rabbit fur. So that was good, good to finally get. And you can tell the difference between real fur and fake fur. You can, it, it's incredible how much of a difference there is. Real fur is soft. Real fur is it, it's so much softer, so much warmer, is durable, it's it's comfortable, it, it's it's better in all ways, and so we hopefully can find opportunities to to promote that and and show people uh, the superiority of wild fur and and why it's much better than the fake stuff and, and a lot of the synthetics you know there's a lot of good synthetics on the market now and I I wear a lot of them but uh, goose down real wool and real fur are really hard to beat so so that's something uh, to think about there those are products from animals that I think uh, still have a place in modern day society and uh, and, and there, there always will be a market whether it's 
as good as it was in the 70s, 80s, or in the 30s and 40s, who knows? Um, it, it may not be. It may not, not ever reach those points. But I think uh, we're, we're still going to have a market that will reward us financially as trappers if we're smart and efficient and, um, and we're patient. So anyway, tonight I have an interview with Will Griffith. He's a trapper from Ohio. Had a lot of fun talking with Will on the phone. Uh, he listens to the podcast. If you are not familiar with the name, he's actually the guy that uh, Chris Pope went trapping, uh, Chris Pope from Coyote Trapping School went to Ohio to trap last year and he he trapped with Will. So, uh, you know, there's a few YouTube videos on there with those guys trapping together there. And uh, he offered to come on do an interview on the podcast and and I thought that was a great opportunity. One of the things I love about this show is we have the ability to talk with trappers from all over the country. And we, we all have different experiences. You'll hear me and Will talk about that, you know, different situations, weather, climate, um, type, land type, uh, populations, everything is so different uh, as you go across the United States, east to west, north to south. However, we we deal with so many of the same things. There's so many common themes among trappers. So it's it's great to have that connection and to have all you guys listening from all over the country. So anyway, with that, we'll get in the interview and uh, let's talk trapping with Will. Will Griffith from Ohio. How's it going out there? Hey, how you doing? Oh, I'm doing great, doing great. Um, how's trapping in Ohio anyway? Uh, <laughs> this year's great dealing with weather. Uh, we started early, like the first week of November, and we've been fighting weather ever since. Between 50, 60 degree weather to snow to it's uh, 17 degrees right now. Really? <laughs> yeah. You've been we, all... we had uh, we got about an inch and a half of rain yesterday. Wow! And it was forty-five degrees. Yep, yep. That must be the same weather system. That's that actually happened to us. We had we had a couple feet of snow on the ground, and we lost almost half of it uh, just in in a couple of days. And now it's back to uh, the teens and getting yep. colder. So. Yeah, we started out pretty good uh, first two weeks. Uh, trying to get the line out and trying to get our day-to-day with between coon muskrats and coyotes get everything set and we had like 40 degrees for about a week and then we had an inch of rain then it dropped down to like zero and we had eight inches of snow the next day (laughs) yeah hard hard to uh find traps in eight inches of snow huh uh yeah so, um, yeah, one of the challenges that people have, most people have that listen to this is finding time to trap. It sounds like you got a little bit of time. How the heck did you manage that? To find time? Yeah. Well, I am, uh, a steel worker full, full time. Uh, but I, my township that I, that I trap in, I usually run about three counties, which I'm pretty close to all three counties within 20 miles and i do what i can in the mornings checking traps and do what i can coming home and then spend a lot of time in the first shed trying to keep up yeah so we got i I got slammed with coon early and 
I'm still trying to get caught up from all them. <laughs> so you're doing the full-time job and trapping before and after work just like most of us. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, that is that is not always very easy. No, and I usually take like the first couple of weeks of November off, and because it take you know everybody knows how it is putting traps in. You think you can do thirty thirty five a day, and you end up with twelve. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I usually try to put out uh, about seventy five coyote sets, and uh, well, this year it's been about I've been running. 18 to 24, somewhere around there, you know, between my misfires and I can't get them rebedded and for two or three days because of the water and it, it, this year's been a nightmare. Yeah, if you don't have the whole day to after you run your line to, to remake sets and do all kinds of that stuff, um, it really, yeah, it really pushes things back. It's hard to keep, even just keep up with the sets you have running. Yeah, and, you know, we run through and all our misfires, try to get back to it before the end of the day and try to get them working again. And, you know, you finally get a catch or two and it puts you farther behind on the day and then you run out of daylight quick. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's, what, 6 o'clock here and I've been running pretty much all day today trying to get sets in, working trying to get my line back out because our gun season was just uh last week it was over sunday and uh, i usually pull everything for it or at least fire everything off yeah because uh, you ne- it never fails you get a deer hunter to you you know that's that's the week you'll end up catching a lot of coyotes and and all of them get shot up and people just think they they need to help me so they don't get free oh yeah i know it <laughs> So do you trap a lot of public land or is it like private land that people uh, hunt on? I, I trap all private. Okay. Um, a lot of my stuff, it's all agriculture. Um, you know, I, I I like to say I have 16 to 20 farms I, I set, but in the coyote world, I have six, of, six farms right in a row and then go 20 miles and I have another three or four farms right in a row. So, you know, I'm, I'm trapping the same coyotes. Yeah. You know, there'll be four, five, six farms right in a row, but the way the coyotes are, it's the same group. And if I connect on one farm, like, say, all the way to the east, I know I'm not going to connect all the way to the west. Okay. Just because of how large large the areas are. Yeah. So your, your it, farms are not nearly the size of a coyote home range. No, I'm talking like thousand acre blocks yeah you know the thousand acre block might have three different owners on it and there'll be four five six fields right in a row that are 200 acres a piece and you know trying to hit the vocal points of the farm lanes and the fence rows the fence rows we do have left that haven't been tore out but sure there's probably probably a lot of fences get tore down to plant more corn soybeans oh uh, yeah we there's not a lot of fence rows left and like the old two track, uh, farm lanes that notorious, you know, especially out West, you know, notorious two track lanes. We don't have them. There's a couple of farms I trapped that still have them, but, um, a lot of the farms now are just all tall field. They work everything down so they can plant corn in it and plowed right ro- from road to road. Yep. Road to road. Yeah. Huh. That's how everything works up here. Yeah. 
So, so you're in big time farm country. What part of Ohio is that? Uh, we're central. I'm 45 minutes north of Columbus. Okay. Uh, we're pretty much right dead smack in the middle of the state. Yeah. And, uh, but where I'm at, there's four counties and right here together, oh, three actually, one's a little bit farther away, but so I can say, yeah, I trapped four counties, but I might only <laughs> drive 35 miles. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no doubt. And, uh, you're trapping, targeting primarily coyotes or a little bit of everything? I, I, I primarily on coyotes. Uh, I do a lot of coon. I like doing coon. It helps me my day in every day. You know, it helps because I don't want to say coon are easy to catch, but you're a lot more, it's a lot more prevalent to catch a coon sure. than it is yeah. a coyote. And Keeps things interesting. <laughs> yeah. And I got two young boys and they like to run with me as much as they can and you know it's a lot more interesting to them instead of just driving around and just to look at open fields with nothing nothing in iron yeah a lot of empty traps in a row is, <laughs> yeah, it gets yeah. a little depressing after a while <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah and, and like the eastern coyotes who you know we don't have the population that's out west and you know i might be able to catch four or five on one farm but the next farm right next to it, I'm, I'm not going to catch anything. Yeah. It, it, it might take a month and a half, two months and then new, you know, new cots are going to come in, but it's just a long waiting game. Yeah. Now those are, how, how do you do in the market with those Ohio coyotes? I, I've always heard that they're on, on the low end, but you know, not like a Southern coyote, but they're nowhere near a Western coyote either. I sold mine last year and I averaged twenty eight dollars across. Yeah. And I had one that made seventy. Yeah. But my average was still, you know, in the twenties. Yeah. Um, they get furred up real good, but by the time they get furred up for our winter, they're already rubbing and you know, they're kicking off the breeding season then and you know, you get ones with big punch holes put in them and uh, they rubbed real bad. So it's a pretty short time window when you get really good fur. Yeah. Yeah. It's usually about Thanksgiving to Christmas. And then after Christmas, it's, they start, uh, you know, you still, you still catch 25% of them are still furred good, but you still get the ones that are nasty looking. Yeah. And do your coyotes, do they have like long coarse hair like we have up here in, like in Maine? Yeah. They they just they're not so, not real soft. No, no, not at all. They you know they'll have them six seven inch guard hairs on their back. And yes, yeah. run all the way down their back to their tail and yeah. I, I think they're I think they're pretty. I like oh that. yeah, you look at I've looked at you know some of our coyotes. You put them by a western coyote, and you can tell the differences. But to me, they're not that big of a difference. You know, we get we have some really nice ones, but uh, I guess. You know, to someone who's making a coat, maybe they they pick up on things that, that I don't necessarily see. Yeah, definitely. Well, a lot of the Western coyotes too. You see pictures of them, and they look fluffy, like because they're furred so well, because they they have to be to survive. Yeah. And they just look like they weigh seventy pounds, but they're they weigh about you know, twenty twenty five. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they got five you know five pounds of hair on them. Yeah. How big you know, are coyotes, how big are your coyotes? Uh, you know, our average is probably 25 pounds. You know, we get some males that are pushing the 40 mark, but 
you know, I love it when I hear people say, oh, you know, that's a 50 pound coyote. Yeah. And I, I've trapped, uh, this is my 25th season and I have had one coyote break 50 pounds mm-hmm. and he had a belly full of deer meat. <laughs> yeah. And that I, adds I a lot of pounds. <laughs> that's the only reason he weighed that. Yeah. I, the biggest, I only weighed one of my coyotes this year. It was the biggest one I caught. And, and, uh, I thought it was, you know, in the forties, I thought it was, it was a big coyote and, uh, it tipped the scale at 35. Mm-hmm. So even yeah, up that's, here, you know, that's a pretty big coyote. Yeah. The big male coyotes, I, I'd say around here, the good ones, the older ones are, they're between 30 and 40 pounds Yeah, on average, you know, but you got to get the cream of the crop out and, you know, 90% of your catches first, second year pups and around here they are and yeah. you know they're they're 20 24 25 pounds which we catch coon bigger than some of our coyotes <laughs> yeah how, how do I your know. coons uh how do your coons run in the market uh i averaged eight bucks last year for mine and i didn't keep anything that was under a double x okay i let everything loose this year i'm keeping everything I'm, I'm, I might, might, some people might think I'm crazy, but I'm going to play the market. I'm going to try my best. And I'm, I think I'm at 70, some 72, 74, good coon. Nice. I don't, but I've got a bunch of coon there beat up and, but I did notice last week during our gun law for deer, there's a lot of coon, uh, every day we'd see at least one coon somewhere just curled up in a ball out in the field hair missing like its whole underbelly missing hair yeah eyes eyes all matted shut just nasty i'm not 100 percent sure what it is uh, i haven't caught any coon like that yet but i did notice this week that when we saw 10 or 15 of them that they they seriously got something wrong with them yeah, and, and it's something a lot of people don't consider. You know, y- yeah, everybody says don't trap the fur when, you know, when the when the market's low, when prices are low. You don't want to flood the market. But at the same time, as far as the coon population goes, you're going to have that. When you have several yeah. years of very low trapping pressure, essentially no harvest on a lot of those coons. Yeah. Uh, and it, the disease comes into them. And, yeah. Mother, uh, Mother Nature harvests them for us. Yeah. I don't know how your fur market, I think our last real big boom on coon around here was like 99, 98, 99. Yeah. Yeah. There was a 20, the, that whole 2012, 2013, we had, there were some coons that did pretty well, but in general, our coons don't, our coons aren't that great up here. Um, yeah. back in the eighties, uh, you know, I wasn't trapping in the eighties, but a lot of the the old timers say, you know, they were getting forty dollars a coon back back mm-hmm. in the late seventies, early eighties. Yeah, my great granddad always talked about that, and I was thinking, always, I've always think of that every year. And he <laughs> said thirty, forty dollars a coon. I'm thinking, geez, I could, you know, almost, you know, pay my house off. Yeah, just on coons. <laughs> yeah, if you think about, uh, you take inflation into account and think about what that yeah. would be worth now. Jeez. Uh, yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, the cost of living has went up so much since the seventies and eighties, and that forty dollar coons a seventy dollar coon now. At least, yeah, at least. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that's you're you're a, you're a MB five fifty fan, aren't you? 
I'm starting to be. I, I this was the first year I really I really used them heavily. Well, I I, sw- I switched to some last year. Uh, I'm an MB650 fan. Yeah, Wait, yeah. See, we can't even try them here. We got jaw spread restriction here. Um, so we do too, but we laminated all of ours. Uh, we have a six inch limit here. So so uh, we're at five and three eighths. Yeah, that's small. You'd have to have some pretty big. What what's the I, spread on that? Uh, the inside spread on that without lamination. Without, I think it's six and a quarter. Okay, yeah, you'd have to have. And I think all all my stuff now is like almost. It's like five and seven eighths or five and three quarter. Yeah. yeah. It, it's it's really close around that mark, and I wish we could use the, the Bridger threes, like the Douglas yeah. threes. Yeah, I love them. I, w- I wish we could laminate them to make them legal, but they're so wide of a trap. Other like yeah, they go the other lever. way. Yeah, yeah, lever to lever, you just can't, you just can't do it. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I think that it, like the the five fifty is what four and three quarter inside. Um, yeah, if you could get another half inch on the inside, I think it'd make a big difference. Yeah, they they have great holding power. Uh, I've, I caught a few cards last year with them. Like I said, I've always been a 650 fan, and, you know, all my arsenal until last year was 650s. Yeah. And, oh, Chris Pope, he he brought some up, and I ended up getting a hold of some just because he was coming up here. Yeah. And uh, set them, and, you know, they, they held good, you know, not any you know, foot damage at all. And the one good thing about them – is you're going to catch your non-targets too. You're going to catch fox. You're going to catch coon. Yep. Just because of the the pan pressure. My 650s, which I originally designed it, you know, for the pan pressure, so I'm not catching fox. I don't want to catch them here. We have them. They're few and far between. The coyotes have really done a huge number on them. Okay. And I usually catch one or two a year, and I'll let them go. Uh, but. That's the whole reason to the 650s, so I can run a higher pan pressure. I'm missing coyotes because of it. Yeah. But what are you, what are you running? How many pounds are you running? Uh, three, three and a half. Okay. Yeah. You know, some of them are probably pushing four, uh, which those are the ones I noticed I, that I'm missing on. Yeah. And I'll end up pulling them out and loosening them up a little bit to help my help myself out. So I'm not familiar with the 650. Is is that a a screw tension, or do you have to do something different to adjust the tension? It, 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 it is a screw tension. Okay, yeah, it's it amazing is. how much different that is than the 550. Yeah, it is. It's amazing. It's a totally different trap. Yeah, and in the 650s, you know, both jaws are are solid. Yeah, no loose jaw. Yeah, is does There's that no present some jaw. challenges? Uh, no. No, I actually, you know, I, I like it because there's no loose jaw to it, um, and their wire, the wire levers. Yeah. You know, especially with the ground weir trapping, that gets so hard, and then the freeze and thaw and freeze and thaw. I, yeah. I know for a fact that I don't have to worry about them not coming out of the ground. Hmm. Uh, but then the pan is huge, huge pan. It's like three, yeah, three inch pan. Nice, yeah. Or three and a quarter, something like that. And, but I absolutely love them. I would recommend them to anybody if you could legally use them. 
Yeah, the other, you know, the trap that is legal here that I, I tried a few of this year is the uh, the Canine Extreme Junior. Have you used those? I have not. I was actually, earlier in the year, I was going to buy like half a dozen of them and just run them to see how they how they hold up to the Minnesota brand. Yeah. Just to see how much difference there is between the two. Yeah. Uh, yeah, then I, I still might do that now. Yeah, I ran I ran half a dozen of those and two dozen five fifties, and uh, I I like them. I just I just what I like about the five fifties is they come to your house and they're ready to go. Yeah, no adjustments. I I mean maybe some people have to adjust some, but for like two two and a half pound t- pan tension. Um, I never had to do anything to those traps at all. Yeah. Um, and so, so that kind of appealed to me. Uh, the The extremes I really had to work on the pan tension quite a bit, so I I wasn't too excited about that. But once they were set up, they they're a bigger jaw spread and and they were a really good trap. They I think I think they're going to be nice. Are they right at five inches? They are five and a quarter. I I believe. Five and a quarter. So that's right at your max. Though. Yeah, yeah, we're fine. Yeah, we're that's right below our max. Okay. Yeah, the only issue I have with the six fifties, which having two young boys that run the line with me, you know, my oldest son he's twelve. He always he's he's constantly, can I do? Can I set one? Can I do this? Can I do that? <laughs> and he, he physically can't do it. Yeah. You know, they're an extremely stout trap. They're well built and they're, but. You it, use setters for them? I do. I do not know. Uh, I, I have. I have no problem setting them. Um, I set them on my leg, yeah. just over my knee. And well, Chris Pope was up there. He said something about it too. That he's like, "Geez, you know, because it takes you know, two small boys and a mule to set them <laughs> most of the time." But it gets. But the only issue with them too is. When you have gloves on, uh, the pan is a kind of a pain to get that night latch set. Okay. You know, when it gets cold and you got big bulky gloves on. Yeah. And that's that's. But other than that, love them. And you're working. You have to work inside the jaws because you don't have that loose jaw. I, I do not know. I sit them down, and give them like a quarter twist, and they're solid. Okay, but it, when, it you, long, when you're set, like, when you're setting the pan. Can you still get to the pan from the underside of the trap? No, you cannot. Okay, so when you you're have, setting you it, have you... To do it, you have to be on like the kill side of the trap. Okay, or the or the catch side. Yeah, which is the only huge. You know, if you mess up, you're gonna know it. <laughs> yeah, take him across the knuckle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which I which I've done it. I do it every year, multiple times. And I catch my uh, catch myself and kind of say a few choice words and then take and my hand out and move go on. along the way. <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned Chris, um, and and for people who don't know, um, Chris Pope from Coyote Trapping School did I think a week with you in Ohio last year. Yeah, he was up here. I think I think he was here for four checks or four days and three checks or something like yeah, right at a week. Yeah. And. Same as last year, we had horrible weather, and he actually got himself a Ohio coyote, which is what he wanted, and he wanted to catch a coyote in the snow, and he got one caught in the snow. Yeah. And 
that was it was actually the weekend the week before our actual first season comes in. We're primarily setting coyotes. Okay, so you can set coyotes year round there. Yes. Okay. Yes. I usually go in four or five days early before our first season comes in. Just so I can get all my coyote sets put out. Yeah. Because it takes so much time it's so time consuming to do all that. And but he actually caught one and was that was the only thing we had caught the whole time he was here, other than a couple big borcoon. Wow. And slow, the slow. second the day he left that next morning, he'd left the night before. The next morning I had two coyotes. And I think we were running I think we only had like thirty traps topped in, I think. But we had two coyotes the next morning, and I actually had coon traps out and caught a bunch of coon that night. And You texted him a bunch of pictures on his way home? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he, he, was pretty, he was pretty happy about it, you know. Yeah, that's always second, how it works. Yeah, the second he leaves Ohio, had two of them caught. And yeah. He's a, he's, a good, he's a good guy. Yeah, that's good. So uh, one of the things that I would noticed this year, I wanted to see if you're, you're 25 years, if you've noticed this uh, – was they the coyotes really seem to move a lot in the rain? Yes, and, I agree with that. And that's of course that can be a challenge because that's when your sets oftentimes don't want to work quite so well. Yeah, and I, I run wax dirt year round. Yeah. Uh, second, my traps are in the ground. I have wax dirt on them. And the only problem with wax dirt when you get a lot of rain, that stuff will float. Yes, I noticed that. And, yeah. and it doesn't pack. It, you can't pack it like you can regular dirt. And I had a lot of issues early. Every time it rained, coyotes come through and everything start floating and they see my pan cover or see something and they end up scratching it out and go on their way. But I did notice that the last couple of years that usually the night before rain, the night of the rain or the night after, they're extremely active and they travel a long way yeah it's amazing and like the one we had a big storm system coming in uh one night and i it just started raining i was up at four o'clock to go check traps and it it didn't start raining till about 6 30 the very first bit of rain but that morning that morning i had four coyotes it was the, the biggest day i i had all season and it was just it was just right ahead of that rain um, and I, you know, I've been trying to, as much as I can, every time I do have a catch or a real good night where you can see a lot of tracks in the mud and stuff like that, like where you can see, kind of keep track of how the barometric pressure is. Okay. I've, I've been doing that for like four or five years. Uh-huh. And it's the same concept with deer. You know, when you get your high pressure systems come through, you get a lot more activity with your deer during daylight. Yeah. As I can, and I don't really know why I'm doing it because it doesn't do me any good because I can't adjust the barometric pressure. That's a good point. <laughs> well, it's, not, it's not like and, fishing where you, oh, I'm not going to go out today because the pressure's not right. Yeah, you yeah, know, you've exactly. got to go out. <laughs> but in, it's almost down to an art that if you really pay attention to that, and coon, coon do the same thing. You know, you get your, your pressure systems up, coon run like crazy. Huh. When you have a real low pressure system, there you don't really catch nothing. You have your missed days where you might catch a possum or a coon and nothing else. Uh, but there is a huge that I've noticed just from the pressure 
of all these the winter storms, either rain, snow, um, any of that stuff. I, I've seen a huge difference in that. Yeah, just just ahead of them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, are you yeah. one of those guys that keeps notes on everything? Uh, yeah, yeah, I do. Because I I hate the fact when you go to set and you have a catch or you have to remake or something happens you have to rebate and lure and i forget what i had there yeah yeah and i i I don't know why but i know it probably doesn't make much difference but i want to make sure i put the same stuff there and if i don't keep notes it'll drive me nuts (laughs) yeah but yeah i keep all, all my farms you know labeled by name and what sets are there where the sets are what bait lure I use deer in there, uh, dirt hole flat, flat set, you know, all that is all recorded. Um, and then as I have misses, I, you know, check mark on all those sets of what got missed and what, what it was. I say a coyote come in, I missed a coyote mm-hmm. or they stepped in and just, you know, did the dog scratch in the background where they're just scratching their back feet in the ground because they're at, you know, they can smell it. Yeah any activity I have on that, I'll keep a record of it. And then I run four or five different bait makers um, and lure makers at that. Mm -hmm. And it kind of helps me kind of get an idea what I need to run that year for that, you know, that time of year. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I think to me, I think it changes more, especially with bait towards the breeding season to, just earlier in like late part of November to breeding season, there's a huge window where the parent, the mom and dad coyote are kicking the pups off. You know, they're kind of going on their own and parents are trying to kick them off and kick them away. And there's a, you know, I don't know if you have this problem out in Maine, but here you'll have a two, like the first two weeks of December or it's usually about the first two weeks of December that, your catch is extremely slow. Um, and I think that has a lot to do with the, you know, parents kicking the pups off and the pups are just running ragged and you'd think you'd catch more, but you have, say you have six coyotes on a home range and the parents kick four of them off. Now you only have two mm-hmm. on that, on that home range of that farm you have set. Yeah. So your percentage is going down just because of that. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, I think the way that, I look at it, I think that happens. You know, dispersal seems to happen a lot earlier here. By the first second week of December, we usually have two feet of snow, and uh, yeah. we're done trapping. Will and I were long-winded in our conversation, so uh, I cut this off about halfway through, and we're gonna get into the rest of the interview for next week's episode. So. Um, I, th- I thought uh, that was pretty uh, good spot to, to break things off, and we're going to get into a bunch of other topics uh, next week. Uh, if you heard the background noise, that's actually the crackling from the fire in the fur shed, so I hope that didn't annoy you guys a little too much. It's kind of an authentic little background here. Um, I heat my fur shed with wood and uh, no other heating source, and it's pretty gosh darn cold here in northern Maine this time of year. So anyway, that was that was what was popping and snapping in the background thanks for tuning in to tonight's episode it's always good to have you guys lots of stuff going on so stay tuned for the coming weeks 
And uh, if you need some long distance call trapping lure, um, I'm going to stop selling that at the end of January. So if you, I may, might resume sometime in March, but for a long time there, I'm not going to have any available. So if you need it, um, go to trappingtoday.com or get on eBay and search for Trapping Today Long Distance Call and pick up a bottle of lure. And my book, Fur Profit, is available for sale on Amazon, trappingtoday.com, and most of the major trapping supply dealers. So thanks for your support. We will catch you on the next episode.